You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Good evening, everyone, um, and thank you all for coming. Uh, please do, I'm just worried that we're going to have some rain shortly, and so I was just going to say, if you can um, come and take seats within um, kind of the central area, you might be a little bit drier. Um, firstly, I would like to acknowledge the Yalukkawillim as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalukkawillim are part of the Boomerang, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. We are delighted to be partnering with Swinburne University for this evening's conversation. We are so appreciative of their continued support to M Pavilion and the programme. We are also grateful for our partners, City of Melbourne, Greater Victoria and ANZ for their ongoing support. I'll hand over to Jenny Pay to introduce our speakers for tonight's conversation. Thank you, Jen. Okay, I'm Jenny Pay. I'm from the Smart Cities Research Institute at Swinburne University. I'm the program leader for um, Future Cities for Living. So part of put, putting together the design of cities and the technologies that are in them and making it all work for the people who live there. So that's our sort of driving force. Um, so tonight we have a talk about digital media and social innovation. And we have some very exciting speakers here. Um, sitting in the audience, we have the director of the Smart Cities Research Institute, Professor Mark Burry. Um, and he's been a senior architect and lead researcher at the Sagrada Familia Basilica in Barcelona and knows both of our speakers well. Um, and was awarded, awarded the Australian Federation Fellowship in 2005 and is recognised internationally as a thought leader and researcher. So he's now directing Smart Cities at Swinburne. We also have uh, Professor Rob Adams, AM, who is director of the city, city Design at the City of Melbourne. He's a member of the Urbanisation Council of the World Economic Forum, and he and his team have over 120 local, national and international awards, including four times receiving the Australian Award for Urban Design, and Rob has also awarded the Prime Minister's Environmentalist of the Year in 2008 and the Order of Australia in 2007 for his contribution to architecture and urban design. We also have Professor Carlo Ratti, who has come, from our, come to us um, from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he directs the MIT Sensible City Lab. Um, he's an architect, an engineer, an inventor, an educator and an activist, as well as an author of Open Source Architecture book. Um, the research of the MIT Sensible Lab is exploring how new technologies are changing the way we understand, design and ultimately live in cities. So it's all about the technology, the city design and the people who live there. He's a founding partner of the International Design and Innovation Office, Carlo Ratti Associati, which he established in 2004 and now has a branch in New York. Since 2009, Carlo has been a delegate to the World Economic Forum in Davos and is currently serving as co-chair of the Global Future Council on Cities and Urbanisation. Um, excitingly, <laughs> Esquire magazine, the, these are the real creds now, we've done all the... the uh, the serious stuff. Esquire magazine has included him among the two, uh, 208, 2008 best and brightest. And Forbes magazine has named him um, as being, among, being amongst the names you need to know for 2011. And Wired magazine 
has him on the smart list of 2012 of 50 people who will change the world. And you have him here tonight speaking to you. Yeah, we know those were the names you need to know in 2011. Now you can forget about them. So. <laughs> um, if, if you do forget, it's all listed on the M Pavilion website. So you can go and see it, read it all in, in, at your leisure. Okay, so tonight we have a conversation between um, Rob and Carlo talking about the topic of digital media and social innovation. So, the digital revolution is changing the way we live today as radically as the Industrial Revolution did almost two centuries ago. So, as urbanisation accelerates across the world, digital media and information technologies are integrating with the built environment. So we need to come at this from two, two sides. We need to think about this from the side of architectural design, but also information design and, and interaction design and digital media design. So there's a huge potential for bringing these two powers together, for understanding, designing and managing the future city in terms of the technologies that will be designed to integrate with it. Now, for this to happen, we have to have a multidisciplinary approach. And I think that's part of what the Swinburne Smart Cities Research Institute is trying to do, is bring together people from different disciplines. So, um, disciplines as diverse as city planning, architecture, engineering, computer science and social science. So, if you haven't looked at the MIT Sensible Cities City Lab website, it's really interesting. There's a lot of fantastic projects happening there. So, I really recommend you do that um, after tonight. But first of all, I'm going to hand over, we're going to get a conversation going at some point and we will have some audience participation, when, so we'll have some time for questions. But first of all, I'd like to hand over to Carlo, who's going to have a little bit of a chat with you first. Thank you. Um, thank you, and first of all, you know, very happy to be here, uh, to be back in, uh, in Melbourne. Um, you know, I've been, I had a pleasure to be here quite a few times over the past few years, also with Mark, we've been working with um, the government of Victoria on a few projects in the city, looking at mobility and so on, so I'm very happy to be back here uh, today. And especially to trade the terrible winter, uh, well, fall and winter in Boston, you know, it just snowed for the first time two days ago with this beautiful weather uh, here. Now, uh, what I will do, I will keep it very, very short, just speak for five minutes, and then I think we can have a conversation with all of you and also with, uh, with Rob, and it's great to see Rob again. You know, we usually meet each other in, uh, in different parts of the world. The last few times we're in Dubai, in uh, Copenhagen, and, and so on, so it's great to, to see you here in, uh, in uh, Melbourne. Um, so, um, very briefly, um, um, well, why are we passionate about cities? We're passionate about cities, well, first of all, uh, it was mentioned before, you know, that the the, the, the two hats I'm wearing is one is uh, uh, head of Sensible City Lab at MIT, research center um, looking at cities and how new technologies are changing the way we, we understand them and design them. Um, and also with the design office, uh, uh, Calorate Sociati. Now, why are we passionate about cities? Um, just four numbers about cities. If you need to remember four numbers, remember 250, 75, and 80. Cities are only 2% of the crust of the planet. But they're 50%, actually a little over 50% of the population. They're 75% of energy consumption, 80% of CO2 emissions. So if we can do something to make our cities a little bit more sustainable, that can be a big deal globally. And um, um, that's what we are looking at again, you know, in uh, uh, we, we kind of in a network structure, a sensible city lab, uh, Boston and in Singapore, where MIT has a big research operation in, with our uh, design office in New York, in London, in, uh, in Italy, and uh, some of the startups that are coming out of them. But uh, um, today, I, 
wanted to start from something that Robert and I have been involved in. It was mentioned before, Robert and I have both been serving on the World Economic Forum Council on Cities now for a number of years. And uh, that's why we meet once a year in Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Uh, and a few years ago, um, we came up with a report. It was about uh, what was called, what the forum called Top 10 Urban Innovations. But it was about looking at this space of new technologies and how they're changing the way we live cities in different dimensions of, uh, of cities. Um, and um, one of the things actually was uh, inspired by Melbourne. And it was the project here in Melbourne to use uh, digital and social media in order to connect with trees and to monitor trees and map trees and so on. And so what I want to talk to you today, uh, discuss with you today, is about nature and cities. Also because we are in this beautiful pavilion here in the park. So I want to start from this. So this was one of the case studies that were, was selected by the World Economic Forum. And incidentally, that also led to an artificial intelligence project we did at MIT, also with the help of Rob and, uh, and many others, where we said, okay, well, Melbourne did this, had a lot of success in mapping trees in the city, but Melbourne is, is, you know, is a city that has a lot of information about, uh, about itself. It's a city where you have maps with all of the trees, but in many cities, this information is not available. And so we opened this website that we call Treepedia, uh, where we actually use artificial intelligence applied to Google Street View. This is actually Google Street View that I took, just a, took a screenshot uh, a few minutes ago, uh, just from the corner over there. As you know, Google Street View is based on, on cars or people uh, you know, with, with sensors provided by Google. They go around cities all over the world and keep on scanning the urban environment. And what we did was take all these pictures, and if you want, if you use the API, you can actually download all of the pictures they take in a city, and then you can use that as a basis for different type of analysis. And here we use artificial intelligence uh, uh, in order to do something simple. This was the first thing, just image processing. Now we're using deep learning for doing the same. But basically, you take a picture, and then you identify the green spaces, and then you know you can measure how much green you have. And so you can do like a map of trees all over the planet. And uh, so that's what we call uh, uh, Treepedia. Actually, there's a code if you're interested in doing and running this on some city, which is not yet in the database. You can just download the code, the Python code we have on the website, and run it on the Google Street View data, uh, and contribute to the database. So for us, it was you know, the important thing, again, today is that with digital, we know much more about the city, in this case, about trees. Uh, in the case of Melbourne, it's about, you know, and probably, Rob, you can talk more about the project later that, uh, that really you and the, the city here initiated. But also, we can learn about this on the global scale. For us, it was a big surprise because actually we um, started getting um, hundreds of emails from all over the world of citizens who wanted to know more about the neighbor neighborhood and you know, were saying, you know, can, I, can you measure better? Can I want to go to see the mayor and ask for more trees or to change the green landscape? And you know, can I get the data? Can I, can I can you look at this? So I think you know, this data we can collect from city is the first step then to enact change in cities. So that was the first thing I wanted to put on the table for discussion later, and again, and also because it's something we've been both involved with. Um, having said that, I also wanted to share with you some of the work we've been doing in our design office, again, dealing with nature in cities. And I wanted to start from this. Uh, this is a quote by Elisée Reclus. As you all know, Elisée Reclus was one of the great planners of the modern, of modern times. And over 100 years ago, Elisée Reclus really uh, meditated and wrote a lot about uh, nature and the city. And in one of his writings, there's this beautiful sentence, which is, you know, well, what you really, you really need to try to, to achieve is a combination between the pleasures of the city. The pleasure of the city is uh, the beauty we're seeing tonight, the beauty of being together, exchanging ideas, 
you know, of, uh, of exchanging, of, of diversity, of learning things from each other, but also the pleasures of, of nature. You know, he says, so man should have the double advantage of access to the pleasures of the city, and at the same time should be able to enjoy the freedom that lies in the freedom of nature, and which is explained in the field of its vast horizon. And uh, if you look at this as something that's been going on for thousands of years, if you read Virgilius, uh, in Roman times, 2,000 years ago, he was dealing with the same issue. Now, if you look at how architecture in the 20th century dealt with this, it dealt with this with something like, uh, like what you see here. And this is Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, it's Broadacre City. So the idea was, great, let's stay the city and expand the city into the countryside. And, you know, and, you know this is what happened with Broadacre City, but if you look at Howard, a few years before, with Garden City of Tomorrow, the principle was similar. If you look at the city, La, La Ville Radieuse by Le Corbusier, again, we're the same principle. It was about bringing the city into nature. But when we look at what that left us, we all know what it left us. It left us with a terrible sprawl. It left us with this all over the world. And actually, it didn't uh, bring the city into the countryside. It simply destroyed the countryside and created an urban form that today is impossible to live in, where you can only move by car and uh, you know, we know this. Unfortunately, this has happened all over the world. There's a picture from the United States, but in Australia, there's a few examples as well in the, in the lower world. So I think that the challenge we have today is a different challenge. It's still to look at Elisée Reclus' question, uh, but try to look at it in the other way. The question is, can we bring nature back into the city? And actually, one of our offices in, uh, is in Milan. Uh, you might know this project is by my friend uh, Stefano Boeri. It's called the Ver Vertical uh, uh, Forest. Uh, you know, where he experimented with the idea of bringing trees on, the, on, the, on a skyscraper, making a skyscraper which is fully covered by trees. But then what I want to share with you is some of the projects we've been doing in, over the past few years, really looking with this, seeing how we can bring nature back into the city in, uh, in different ways. Uh, this was one of the first ones. It was, uh, this opened 10 years ago, uh, a small project made in Milan, in the main square in Milan. Um, it's in Piazza della Scala, next to La Scala Theater. It's the extension to the Trussardi Fashion House. Uh, it was the first Italian project with Patrick Blank. Some of you might, uh, from architecture, might know Patrick. Uh, Patrick is uh, the guy who invented um, the vertical garden. There's actually a beautiful project by him and Jean-Noël in, uh, in Sydney. It was opened a, few, it opened a few years ago. But so in this case, we did this kind of suspended garden, a vertical garden, is a way to bring in this square where there's no trees at all. It's, uh, it's very mineral. It's, uh, it's made of just made of stone and asphalt to bring this kind of suspended garden. And for us, it was almost like you know, a living room outside. Uh, it's a place where you can go and have a cafe, a cappuccino. Uh, there's a Michelin star place, a restaurant next to it. But you know, for us, it was more like a place to encounter, to, to meet people. Again, you know, a little bit like this beautiful pavilion, a place where people could come, meet, do some work if they want, uh, eat something in a green space in the center of, uh, of Milan. What we did here, actually, that place was full with cars before. And actually, we removed all the cars. It became pedestrian. We pedestrianized it. And for every car, we put uh, two square meters of, uh, of green uh, in the pavilions. So it's a way to, to swap the 20th century model of a city built around cars. Uh, in this case, removing the car infrastructure and bringing nature back into the city. Um, That's another project. It's, uh, it's just uh, in progress, but it's actually with an Australian developer, Land Lease. Uh, it's one of their biggest projects. It's the, the master plan for the World Expo site. Uh, 2015, we won an international competition with them and we did a master plan there. If any of you have been at, um, at the World Expo site, um, there was a big Australian presence as, uh, as well. And uh, the, the Expo site had a long boulevard that was called the Decumano. It was actually built in the same way Romans, ancient Romans used to build cities. In ancient Romans, to build a city would actually do two axes. 
two streets. One was called Cardus and one was called Decumanus. They were at 90 degrees and they are the first principle in order to organize land and parcels and to allow them people to, to develop. So the World Expo, the World's Fair in 2015, three years ago, was done a, in a similar way. So one long axis was this kind of Decumano. And uh, we trans transformed it into this linear park that again, it's an inhabited park where people can go. It's like an extension to the offices. You know what, you know, until a few years ago, we were chained into our offices. We are chained to a desktop. You know, we couldn't get out. And that's why our office buildings look like fish tanks. But uh, today we are much more free. Technology is making us able to actually keep on working and being connected in a more flexible way here. You know, this can be our beautiful uh, workspace uh, during the day, a pavilion such as this one. And so I think you know, the idea is uh, how can we actually use that as an extension to the places we work in? So this park uh, is not only a park, it's really an extension to all the offices uh, uh, nearby. Uh, that's the same principle we, we applied into this project, it was finished last year. Um, this project is the refurbishment of the Agnelli Foundation. Um, the Agnelli family is um, uh, a family that controls uh, Exor, uh, which is a big conglomerate. Uh, Exor is behind uh, Chrysler, Jeep, Fiat, uh, The Economist magazine, and uh, many Ferrari, many other things. And this is our family foundation. We, had, uh, we were asked to refurbish it. You know, you see the building, the building has two sides. Had a side which is uh, very early 20th century. Uh, that's actually where Fiat was started in Italy. And then the other side was an extension from the 1950s. It's a bit like Carlo Scarpa. It's not a Scarpa, it's uh, another architect called Albertini. But as you see the details, for those of you who are from architecture, it's a bit like, like Carlo Scarpa. So we had to refurbish it. And um, this opened last year. And again, what we tried to do was really to, uh, uh, to combine indoor and outdoor. Uh, we work with uh, Luis Benesch who's the uh, landscape architect who did uh, all the gardens at the Louvre Museum, at the Tuileries, the new extension of the Tuileries with the Louvre in, uh, in Paris. And then in order to see, as you see, you've got the offices inside and outside, is a place where you can be, of course you can work inside, but you can go outside into that little auditorium, you can uh, have a conference, have a meeting room, uh, you can work on your laptop. So it becomes again a, a way to change the transition between indoor and, uh, and outdoor. Um, I want to tell you a couple of things. Uh, Additional things about this building, um, also that uh, this building pioneers something about responsiveness. And again, technology allows us to have buildings that respond to us more like uh, living things. And so in this building, for the first time, we actually got a real-time anonymous uh, mapping of occupancy. And the idea is that with occupancy, you do many things. When the building is not occupied, maybe that's something we can talk, talk about later with, uh, with Rob. You know, the idea of scheduling is very, very important. Today, we waste so much space just because we use it for a little bit of time, for the rest is unused, but nobody else can use it. If you create a digital platform, in this case, basically the, 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 the building knows uh, occupancy in real time every, everywhere. And then what happens is that you know, the first thing, of course, you know, the building goes on standby if nobody's there, so you save a lot of energy. But also you can have a building with personalized settings. So here we, we like something that we actually experimented with um, Rem Kulas at the Biennale, at the Venice Biennale 2014, there in a more conceptual way. Can you have like a personal climate following you? So this idea of this kind of bubble of heating and cooling that follows you uh, as you're moving through the building, also lighting, that helps you save energy, but also to create a more personalized uh, uh, environment around yourself. I like the way the Wall Street Journal uh, gave the title, you know, last year when it came out, so a possible solution to the office thermostat wars. Well, that was not really our point, but the point was, you know, how can you have an architecture that responds to people better and can save, save energy? Uh, and here you see these elements that actually uh, get occupancy and respond and get activated based on who is in the building. So it was the first time 
uh, we did it in, uh, it was done uh, globally. We, we had a partnership, a research partnership with uh, Siemens, uh, the German company that does a lot of automation. And so that was kind of a pioneer, pioneer in the, the technology. Uh, just something I, I'll mention, this is another part of the, the building where we uh, work with Olafur Eliasson. Some of you might know Olafur is a, is a great artist from uh, Iceland and Denmark. Um, he did a Tate Modern in Turban Hall, a beautiful sun, artificial sun, probably a decade ago. Uh, I work with him in this case again, you know, in that case, behind that wall, there's nature, there's sun, there's light. Uh, but the, here we couldn't leave direct lines of sights. And the reason is that the chairman of the, of the company and the foundation is there in the office, and so there was a privacy issue. So what we did with, uh, with him was actually a way to filter nature through this kaleidoscopic wall. You see it here. And this kaleidoscopic wall basically allows you to see nature and light and movement behind, but without having direct lines of sight uh, from one part of the building to, to the other. And you know, art again, you know, art and nature go very, are very important. They're, again, the only reason why we might go to an office, which is you know, to start a conversation with each, with each other, that's facilitated by, by art and nature. So I think it's uh, something very profound about how an office is changing today. And if you want, we can talk about this later. You know, it's very different, the reason to go to an office today versus 10 years ago. Then it was about executing tasks. Today is more about interacting. And again, nature and art can, can help that. A couple of final projects I want to share with you. Um, There's a project we're doing in Singapore. Uh, we just broke ground a few months ago. Uh, it's a, it is co-designed with um, a big, uh, the Arke Ingalls uh, group. And, um, and it's one of the tallest buildings in Singapore. Um, in this case, we actually use the middle of the building. The top is uh, office space. The bottom is uh, actually service apartment. And in the middle, we created like a public plaza with a lot of green. It's like a tropical forest, a public space where you can go, like on a plaza, be in the middle of nature, overlooking the city. Again, there's a space that you can use as an extension to your office desk. So it became like a place of integration of connections. Something, again, that wasn't possible for the way of working of just five or 10 years ago, but it becomes possible today. And you see here some of the views of the plaza, uh, you know, where people can move through this uh, tropical forest in the middle of the skyscraper. It's around 300 meters high. It's on, it's, on, on, it's, uh, it's on site since uh, a few months, as I mentioned. Uh, you see the entrance, the lobby. Uh, so both at the, at the entrance, in the middle, and at the top, you've got different ways to bring, uh, to bring nature inside the building. Uh, just a quick thing, again, about the thinking about technology. Well, we said technology in the 20th century uh, led to systems that, as I mentioned before, were very inefficient. Think about the car. Today, the car is used 5% of the time. 95% of the time, it's not, not only it's not used, but it uses valuable space <coughs> in our cities. <coughs> now. If today you use uh, systems such as car sharing or ride sharing, you can actually change it. The car can be used by one person and then another person, another person. And so one of the thinking is that uh, tomorrow we sell driving cars, we need much less parking spaces because we don't need to keep cars parked 95% of the time. They can keep them being used by one person and then, and then another one. So in this case, in the, for the parking lot, what do we do? And, and what we did here, uh, we said, okay, well, uh, let's change a bit the design. Let's do the floor to ceiling height a bit higher than normal. Uh, let's move the ramps outside. Let's make the structure inside uh, more flexible so that this infrastructure can be used for something else tomorrow. And I think that's quite important. Today we are building infrastructure that will last for 50, 100, or 200 years, but the way of using it might change in 5, 10, or 20. And so it's very important we build flexibility in the way we, in what we design, in order to make it compatible with different future scenarios, somehow to future proof what we build, uh, what we build today. Now, I want to finish with this project. It was done, um, was done at uh, Milan Design Week earlier this year, six months ago in, uh, in April. 
And uh, Milan Design Week, as, some, as you might know, is, uh, is a big event about uh, uh, art, architecture, design. Uh, there's people from all over the world going to Milan. It's a bit like Fashion Week, but you know, it's, uh, it's about the world of design and uh, furniture and, uh, and architecture. Uh, and we were asked by the organizer of Milan Design Week to do today, this year to do the main installation for, um, for Milan Design Week, for the opening of Milan Design Week. And that was in, uh, what you see here is the Royal Palace of Milan. To the left is the Duomo, the cathedral. So we were given that side to do something. And it was very interesting, you know, we were talking to the, um, to the organizer, to the chairman of Milan Design Week. Coincidentally, he's also the chairman of Cartel, the great design company who does a lot of, uh, you know, furniture that you, you find shops all over the world. And, uh, you know, he was saying, you know, well, we, we, we agreed on something, you know, that today for design is something like what Bucky Fuller would have called a utopia or, obli or oblivion moment. So as designers, we keep on doing all what we've been doing over the past few years, which is going to beautify stupid things. There's going to be oblivion. I mean, I mean, really, we can, we can, you know, we can forget about it. Uh, but if you actually look at design as something that engages with the key issues of our time, if you look at the definition of design that was given by Herbert Simon, the great uh, research Nobel Prize winner, uh, uh, academic of the past century, Herbert Simon said the natural sciences deal with how the world is, but design deals with how the world could be. So if you go back to the roots of design, a design is thinking how the world could be, how our city could be, how we can imagine different ways to transform space. I think this pavilion, this initiative is an example of that. It's about you know, how you know, before it was just you know, a piece of a park and how this can be transformed into something else, into space for the community. So if you go back to that and design will tackle the main challenges of our time, then it's not oblivion, it can be utopia. That, you know, that's really what can, can transform design as a profession and society as a, as a whole. So those were the things, and when we were talking to him, to Claudio, the chairman of, uh, of uh, Salone, of Milan Design Week, uh, you know, he said, you know what, well, there's two key issues for me today. Uh, one issue is the issue about nature, and how we today we can live close, more closely with nature, and the other issue is about climate change. And so what we decided is uh, for the opening of Milan Design Week to do this pavilion, um, this pavilion, you see it here, and we said, okay, we're doing a pavilion that's hopefully going to be totally sustainable, so all the energy we need, we collect locally, and we create a pavilion with four seasons at the same time. We do idea first to bring a garden into the core of Milan, into the center of Milan, into the main square of Milan, next to the Duomo, next to the cathedral, but at the same time, also to change climate, to work with microclimate changes in a sustainable way without throwing a lot of energy just by collecting energy with photovoltaics and using it, uh, in order to create four, uh, uh, four microclimates. So in a pavilion, well, when you go inside, you can have you know, a bit of snow there, real snow, you know, a, a cold side of the pavilion where it's uh, snowing. Uh, another part you know, where it's spring, where it's, winter, uh, where it's winter, spring, summer, and fall, all in a matter of few, a, few, a few steps. So here was the built pavilion. You see it here next to the, the royal palace. Uh, here you see the inside with real snow. Uh, here you see the spring. Uh, which trees actually blossoming. And for us, it was an experiment of how, you know, again, nature and climate change, how we can play with them. And it's also almost like, you know, moving through space and time. When you're moving through this and you go from summer to spring, uh, it's a bit like, you know, the magic experience I mentioned at the beginning today of, you know, I left uh, this kind of very gloomy winter, fall, fall or winter in the United States, you know, to come here to spring. You know, that was like a connection over space, but a connection almost over time. If I stayed there, I would have to wait six months to, 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 to change the season. So, so it's a way to, to play with uh, nature and uh, with the change of nature. 
And actually, with, uh, with the beauty of nature, it changes with the seasons. And uh, so here you see it in also the summer. The summer was a really sweaty uh, Milan, Milan day, very, you know, very hot and, uh, and uh, steamy. Um, and here is a little video of the experience inside. So I'll, um, I'll finish here, but I want to finish with, uh, with the same quote by Elisabeth Clue we started with. And it's really about, you know, well, I think the challenge we have today is really this, of marrying again nature and the city, but in a different way than how we did in the 20th century by destroying nature, destroying the countryside, and probably by actually looking at new ways to bring nature closer to us. Ultimately, as my, my colleague at, uh, at Harvard, E.O. Wilson, the great biologist, you know, says, and, uh, and he wrote in a beautiful book called Biophilia, it's something that's been coded inside us for thousands of years. And so I think one of the challenges, how can we bring this back into today and especially tomorrow's cities? Thanks. Okay, thank you. Now Rob's going to give us some information about what they've been doing at Melbourne, City of Melbourne. Well, what I'd like to do is take what uh, Carlo has been speaking about and just overlay that on Melbourne. Uh, not Melbourne City, but metropolitan Melbourne. I think, uh, as Carlo pointed out, one of the biggest challenges we've got at the moment, and Melbourne is facing it, is the rapid growth we've got and how we deal with climate change. And uh, about uh, 10 years ago, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, a geomathematician, um, uh, Sarah Nagelston, and uh, the proposition that we were looking at is if this city is going to grow as quickly as it is, what is that going to look like in 20, 30 years' time? Is it just more tall buildings? Or is there another future that we haven't actually imagined for the city? And the, the inspiration for that came from uh, many uh, you know, experiences I'd had. But the most seminal for me was uh, as a baby boomer um, going to university in the mid-60s and finding that the universities were having to expand. They were dealing with the problem we're dealing with today. How do we grow quickly? And if you went around the world as I did in 1969 and looked at you know, Germany, Bochum, uh, and, and in the English uh, universities, it was all about just getting bigger. I went back uh, to Cape Town University where I was studying. I, I'm from Zimbabwe. And uh, the university couldn't expand. It was stuck on the side of Table Mountain. So it asked itself a different question. How well are we using the stuff we've got? And that was a really interesting outcome because it showed that, for instance, lecture theatres were being used for 17.5% of the time. So they simply said, we'll just reprogram. We'll just re-timetable. And I went back 30 years later, and there they were. They had trebled their students, and they hadn't built one building that I could recognise. It was pretty much the campus I'd been on. The only recognisable thing is how vibrant it was. So we then applied that to Melbourne. We said, what if? We, not, we don't expand because expansion isn't actually um, you know, doing the city any good. In fact, if you take the data sets and you have, it, have a look at uh, family violence, health, obesity, access to you know, walkable cities, uh, just about any factor you want to look at, 
the areas that are coming up really badly are the fringes of our city. And that's not news to us. Uh, you go back to 2001 and, uh, you know, Griffiths University was doing the vampire vulnerability to petrol and mortgage prices and those maps are coming up for all the capital cities in Australia. We're in fact dividing the city between those in the centre that have everything in terms of access and those on the fringe that are really quite battling at the moment. So the proposition was let's double Melbourne's population and let's only put it within the existing city and let's utilise the assets we've already got, i.e. around the railway stations and activity centres, along the tram lines, along the bus routes and in the brownfield sites. And uh, the finding from that was that you could, you could fit double the population and in that stage it was 4 million to 8 million on 7.5% of the land in Metro Melbourne. You wouldn't have to build higher than five to eight storeys along those and you wouldn't have to invade suburbia. Now a lot of people might say, why don't you want to invade suburbia? Because many of our uh, problems, I think, are political rather than just physical and planning. And if you can tell 92.5% of the population that their area is gonna stay much the same, you might actually be able to change behavior. What do you then do in getting to Carlo's Green City? You can take that 92.5% and you can say, all you guys have to do is actually capture the water off your roof and store it, so slow down its entry into the pipe system, plant trees, as many as possible as you can in your area, and put photovoltaics on your roof. And there's the new green wedge. And, and if you look at any open space study, it says you have to be within 300 meters of an open space. If your street becomes the open space where you can linger and you get a good environment, you don't have to travel 300 meters. You open your front door and it's outside. So my image of where Melbourne could be in 30 years is this compact city that's actually built back on its infrastructure. It has become much smarter in the way that it actually uses it. And that's where the digital age is so important to us, to be able to measure, for instance, how, how well are uh, houses being occupied? I guarantee most of the houses out in the outer area, most of the rooms aren't lived in for more than about 10% of their life. And so how do you reprogram that material into another reality? And this for me is, is what makes living in the city so exciting. If we, if we can convert over from our 20th century paradigm of more of the same, and we're going to an election on Saturday, and there is a party out there telling you, and I'm not taking any political allegiance, <laughs> they're going to expand freeways by six lanes. And you know that no city in the world has ever solved congestion by building more roads. You might want to ask, how do we use our roads more smartly? So a small example of this in terms of how we've helped Green Melbourne is quietly over the last 30 years, we've taken 80 hectares of asphalt out of the city. Um, and we've converted to widened footpaths, we've planted trees. The big one behind us at the moment is South Bank Boulevard where we're taking half of that out and creating a linear park. The city has not come to an end. It's not the end of the world as we know it. The only thing going down in the city at the moment is the number of people who own cars and the number of people who are using cars. And the car is, as Carlo said, the most inefficient way of using it. It's the worst investment you'll ever make. Uh, the moment you buy it, your investment starts going down, unless you wait long enough and it becomes vintage. And then you'll, you'll park it for about 95 to 96% of its life. So 
rethinking the way we use data and the digital age to collect our city together and build on the capacity we've got is the way of the future. And if Zimbabwe and Cape Town University are too far away, when they had the earthquake in Christchurch a few years ago and they lost half of their schools, in a week's, a week's time they had the schools open again and every student went to school. They just hot-seated them. So they had a school in the morning, school in the afternoon. Evenings it was empty again. So they were only using two-thirds of the capacity. We can use data and the digital age to understand the inefficiencies of our cities and use that to our advantage. And that is the exciting thing of where we're going at the moment. So, so Carlo, what have you got to say? Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. Um, let me tell you three things. Um, the first thing is that, you know, I really think when I come to Melbourne, I'm impressed by the vibrancy of the city. But, you know, the fact, you know, the density of people, you know, and that's really what cities are about. Cities are about, you know, bringing us together, as we said before. And, and I think a lot of this comes from, uh, uh, I think, you know, from really what uh, Rob and the team at City Hall have been implemented over a few decades about, you know, using the city in a more effective way, which brings that, that amazing vibrancy of urban life and, uh, and so on. I think, you know, what we might discuss maybe with all of you is the, the point that uh, Rob put on the table, which is, you know, well, that was a great way to do scheduling. That uh, it's, uh, it was, has been very, very innovative and in setting, you know, the stage for a lot of transformations around the world, that, you know, the Melbourne pioneer. But today with digital, we can go probably one step further. So what is the next frontier? You know, we all know that, again, you know, for, for the car, digital is changing a lot of that. The, the zip car that were not possible before are possible, and every zip car takes out according to estimate, anything between 10 and 30 cars from the street, because again, use it better. So I think the, the first question we might discuss all together is about you know, how digital can help us now to leapfrog to go to the next level. And, uh, and the other thing is that uh, I, uh, I think there's an issue about density. And when I talk to my Australian friends, uh, you know, we talk about similar things, you know, I say, you know, well, what do you think is a problem in, uh, in the country? You know, they say, they say you, know, oh, you know, certainly density, is a big, density and congestion is a big problem. And they say, dude, uh, you know, I mean, this is, a, you know, you've got a country which is bigger than Europe, you've got 10% of the population, and you're obsessed about density? I mean, what's, what's going on? And I think there's a lot of education that has to happen about, um, about density. For instance, I've got a question for all of you. So, uh, who has been to New York? Raise your hands. Okay, almost everybody. Who's been to Barcelona? Of course, Mark, who's actually building Barcelona. Um, and, uh, well, you know, which city is denser, Manhattan or Barcelona? Any thoughts? Well, you know, when somebody asks such a question, you need to answer the opposite of what people would think. And then, and then in, uh, in New York, everybody would say New York because it looks like a very dense city. And there's all the kind of tall buildings that are 100 meters high. But it turns out that the density is very similar to the one of Barcelona. And the reason lies in the fact that urban form actually can be more or less effective in the way we use ground. And uh, this was actually noted, for those of you who are in architecture, I think there's a few students from, uh, from architecture. There's a great paper was written, in, I think, in the 1970s uh, by two people at Cambridge University, Leslie Martin, Lionel March, did, and Philip Stedman, uh, that looked at uh, you know, different archetypal urban form and how effectively they use space. And then, basically, the, the, the bottom line, and actually, if you've got a plot of land, you've got two options. You know, you've got a plot of land, the same plot, say, a hectare, maybe, and then you can put a, a building in the middle, and then you get a certain volume by going very, very high. You do a skyscraper. But in the same plot of land, if you actually do like a courtyard, in order to get the same built volume, you can be much, much lower. 
And that's why Barcelona, which uh, the plan of Barcelona was developed by uh, Serda, Ildefonso Serda, a great planner. Incidentally, if you're interested about all what we are talking about tonight, Serda was one of the first visionaries that in the 19th century was thinking and dreaming about the science of cities. He wrote a great book, you know, and he's talking about it. I hope that one day urbanists will become more quantitative. The data can help us to design better cities, which is what Rob was, was just saying. But if you look at Serda, you know, he designed the building with, uh, with this kind of courtier pattern. And so which makes that even if they're only whatever, six, seven, uh, eight story high, then they're very, very dense. And so density is actually something that uh, I guess, you know, probably people have to be educated. And you can, if you're in Barcelona, you don't feel it's a dense city, but actually that's what brings and contributes to the vibrancy of the, of the street life and the, and the urban life. And, uh, and, and so I think, you know, again, maybe there might be different models for Australia. Again, if it is true, I... Uh, that you know the population uh, might grow to 40 million and you know so it could be both uh, new cities that can be a bit of sprawl and extension but certainly density and using better the infrastructure to me is a vital thing um yesterday i was in sydney and i was asked by this guy from cashman and wakefield you know a big real estate company uh it was a panel about you know how cities are changing and saying where, where where should i invest should we invest i told him you know i don't know if he was happy with my answer but i told me well you know first of all don't invest in shopping malls. You know, they're all shutting down in the United States. You know, there's e-commerce and so on. I say, don't invest in office buildings. You know, office buildings, you know, in the past, we had 15 square meters per person. Now, with co-working, you go down to five. So we got excess real estate. And uh, if you do co-working, sorry, if you do co-working, we can also go to co-living. You know, the we work, also open, we live. And so that's, that's happening. Again, it's an old idea. People tried it in the 60s. But now with digital, you can do it much better. Because you can book in real time, in the city, like, like car sharing. People tried it in the 60s and 70s, but it didn't work. Now it works because you got uh, information in your pockets. And, uh, and so I say, well, you know, also in real estate, I'm not so sure with uh, co-working, co-working becoming co-living and so on. Now, I'm not sure the guy was very happy with this, but, uh, but I think that basically my point is exactly what uh, Rob said, that we got a lot of excess capacity in the infrastructure we have. If it is the moving infrastructure, if it is the built infrastructure, if it is offices, shopping malls, and so on, if you use it better, we can actually get more sustainable, more, vi more vibrant cities. I think a, a good example of that is you would have read the other day that um, we need to double the number of trams we're going to buy. And uh, they gave a figure, 250 million, uh, I think it was a year, they need to spend on trams. Uh, at the same time, uh, we know that uh, trams in Melbourne spend 17% of their time at a red light. And in Zurich, they only spend 7% of their time at a red light. So if Zurich can do it, if you took 10% off that, that's the equivalent of 40 trams you've just put on the network without having to buy a tram, just by getting it into that greater efficiency. I mean, you can lie awake at night and wonder about all the things we could be doing in the city if we just started to read the tea leaves in terms of the data we know we've got available to us. and. Unfortunately, we've been led politically from a 20th century paradigm. And it's not going to work for us because there's a tale of two cities. If we follow the 20th century paradigm and carry on building art and building roads and doing the rest of it, uh, we really do end with a divided city and a divided community. And, and, and that's not somewhere where I think we, any of us want to be. So Melbourne, I think, is beautifully set up. And you know, you talk about driverless cars and if you if you talk to the people in the industry, they'll say, look, it's not quite as close as everybody's talking about because there is still you know, so much unpredictability in the environment that a car is going to have to drive in that it might be a little further away than people are saying. 
And then you look at Melbourne and say, you know what? We've got this fantastic system of trams that run out on a radial uh, system from the city. And I challenge you to stand on Latrobe Street at 8 o'clock on a Thursday morning, which I did, and I took a photograph down the tram line that way and a photograph down there, and I didn't get one tram in the photograph. So the capacity of that piece of concrete in the middle of the road and it, its utilization is very low. So what about if we do get close to the, uh, the, the point where in a more predictable environment, which is a tram line, uh, segregated from the traffic, you could have a small bus that circulates in the suburbs, picks up 10 people, gets dropped on the system, the driver climbs out and climbs on his next little bus or her next little bus and goes round. Meanwhile, the other one is shooting into town driverless to drop people, not, not battling through Lonsdale Street and Hoddle Street and that comes straight down the Eastern Freeway, uh, you know, jumps onto uh, the end of uh, Nicholson Street, runs up Latrobe Street and drops them at all the stations that we're building and then goes back out. So we, we're sitting on infrastructure that is absolutely, you know, the best in the world in many cases, but completely underutilized. And the same goes for our, our, our bus system. Uh, if you think of transport, we've got a grid that overlays a, a radial transport system. So if we could get buses to coordinate with buses and uh, with trams and trains, you've actually got the perfect system. And so at the moment, Curtin University are doing an exercise and they're talking about the, the trackless tram. What's the trackless tram? And they're gonna hate me saying it, it's a bus. But they don't want to say bus because Australians have got something about the bus. We don't like buses. So we, we, we'll have a trackless tram which can run on the tram line, get to the other end and then continue on in the same mode on dedicated streets without having to build the expensive infrastructure. And is battery operated. So when it hits the, the system again, it, it sends up uh, it, its a little device and it actually recharges its battery while it's in the system and then goes out again. There are endless solutions that we're sitting on that we're not even you know, starting to develop. And, and the office building is an interesting one because we're designing one for the city at the moment. And we're doing a workplace study. And everybody's saying, well, we, we'll have more workers. And will we? Um, uh, and they'll need more space, will they? I mean, if we're going to five meters per person, we could mostly fit into the one building we've got already. Um, if we go into that n nature of working. So we're designing it not as an office building, but as a, a, a public commons, somewhere where a lot of other people can work as well, as something that the city can share in, uh, as a space that is flexible, that has a core structure that stands up for a thousand years, Carlo's car park with you know high ceilings, and the rest you can plug in. Uh, and that's not sci-fi stuff. That is really just saying, you know, where will our cars be in a few years? First of all, the basement's not being designed to take any petrol cars. So there'll be no ventilation system that will allow a petrol car to go into this basement. It's got to be electrical. Uh, because by the time we finish it, that's where we'll be. That's the future. So that, that's really, I think, the exciting part. Yeah. And... Uh, and uh, <clears throat> What you're saying, Rob, is uh, uh, the, the, the technology is now accelerating a lot of that. And uh, the office is one example of that. And again, if you play it right, we can be more sustainable, less square meter per person, and also but more sociable. You know, it's this component of human friction, which is the only reason to go to, to an office today. And um, uh, maybe a couple, of, uh, a couple of comments. The first one is about you know, uh, our campus at MIT. 
uh, we started monitoring usage. I think the university today is probably the most inefficient piece of real estate you can imagine. And the reason for that is that actually every professor needs to have an office. It's a locked office, but as you know, professors are never in the office because professors are teaching or they're in a meeting or they're traveling for a conference, uh, or they're here in Melbourne enjoying, uh, so I think, you know, and if you lock the office space, you know, this space is used probably less than a car, probably, I, I guess, you know, 2% of the time. So we actually did, we use all the data on the university campus, uh, Wi-Fi data, to see how space is used. And the interesting thing is that uh, not only you can look at this efficiency to design a place better, but then you can let it evolve over time. So if you keep on knowing, like in the, in the office building I showed you before, how it has been used, you can have a kind of a constant replanning and redesigning, you know, if you, if you put, put movable partition and so on, in order to, to make it work better. And, uh, and I think that's where technology is, uh, is interesting. Digital allows us really not to plan anymore for the peak, but, you know, but to get what we need in real time when we need it. So to be more efficient in the way we use space. And uh, the second thing I want to mention is, uh, is a little uh, anecdote about uh, the way I move in, uh, in the United States. Um, so I used to have a car. And uh, five years ago, I stopped. I got rid of the car. You know, I would not have been able to get rid of the car maybe 10 years ago. But now there's Uber, there's Zipcar. You know, Zipcar, Uber, and so on have emerged just in the past few years. Uh, there's all the um, bikes, you know, the dockless bikes. The interesting thing Rob was saying is that when you combine transportation, it's interesting. And people always talked in the past about multimodality. Still very important. But now, thanks to digital, you can do multimodality in real time. You can do multimodality that you know, you're taking the bus or taking the, uh, the T in Boston, the subway, and then you book a, an Uber at the end of the subway in order to go to your destination if it is a mile away. So you can do that on the spot. Or you, know, you take an Uber and you get a mob bike, like a doctor's bike. You see it, you find it, you book it, and then you go. So you can do that. And, uh, and again, something that wasn't possible before becomes possible. And you know what? You know, life is much more fun. Uh, it's, you need to look for parking spaces. You know, you probably, I didn't make the calculation, probably you spend much less money overall. And, um, and usually also if you do Uber pool, you also meet other people. So, so it's also more fun in the way, in the way. And instead of being yourself at the steering wheel, you know, on your own and you're grumpy because stuck in a traffic jam, uh, you can actually create a, a better experience and a better quality of life. So I think technology today can, can help us to do that. And as architects, designers, then we have a big responsibility to see how the city could respond to this. And the city can respond in two ways. First, because the technology changes the behavior of the city, that becomes more dynamic. I think tomorrow we'll interact with the building like we interact with each other in a dynamic way. But also because technology in a Mumfordian way, like Louis, Louis Mumford wrote, changes our, ourselves. And that, that means that we need to change the skin we live in. And architecture is nothing else than our third skin. You know, we got our first skin, the skin of our clothes, and then this third skin, which was always a corset, but now it's something we can redesign as architects, designers, and, uh, and, and make more flexible uh, and molded on our lives. Okay, so we have five minutes for audience comments. <laughs> no, maybe ten minutes. Yeah. Jen lets us. Comments, ideas. Has anyone got something they really want to share? Challenges, things to share. Just raise your hands. Okay. <laughs> yes. What would it take to, to get a uh, trackless uh, tram on the roads? Uh, that's something I would use from the eastern suburbs. So. What, it, what it takes is, I think, first of all, um, our infrastructure tends to be, um, if not directly owned, 
but people feel they've got, you know, rights to uh, that. So, you know, if you talk to um, the tram companies, they'll say, look, we're running a tram system. We don't want buses on our, our, our tram system. And by the way, the dimensions don't work. Well, you know, it's easy enough to design a bus the same width as a tram. And that's where I think Peter's going. You know, let's have them the same dimension so you don't get into these silly arguments about whether it can fit or not. But I think you need to start making uh, that infrastructure available to the highest, most efficient user. And that should be the, the, you know, the, 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 the reason you get access, not because you've had it for the last 30, 50, 180 years. And, and uh, we also need to get um, the community to realize that this change is not frightening. And, and the one uh, sort of thing which might sound me like, uh, make me sound like an old man is I get really irritated with architects who, who draw sort of sci-fi futures, you know, and, and it doesn't look like a city and there's things sort of <laughs> all over the place. That might happen, but you don't change that place out there in, in you know, a few years. That's what you've got. And in fact, this future can happen within the city as we understand it. Um, we don't have to knock it down and reinvent it. In fact, we couldn't afford to. So I think we've got to actually stop frightening people with a lot of our uh, images of you know, what cities look like because they'll look pretty similar uh, you know, in, in 10, 15, 20 years' time. I hope they're denser. Uh, I'm not at, against density, but I just think let's put the density in the right place. But at the moment, we've got seven, I think, bus companies running the buses. Is it no surprise that they don't coordinate? You know, and a lot of them are family companies, and, and that's great. But, uh, you know, uh, it's not helping us in terms of running a system. Any other comments, questions, challenges? Yes. Um, do you know of any cities in the world that actually have smart... Um, traffic lights because it seems to me that traffic lights are a problem like for whatever you decide whether it's cars or uh, you know driverless trams or you know, you know all, all the different things because they, they, they're partly connected but the whole grid is never connected and so there's always jams everywhere so whether it's trams or cars or whatever it just seems to be an issue. Melbourne actually has a reasonably smart uh, system. Um, on, on, the, on the day that we closed Swanson Street, and uh, <coughs> that was meant to be a disaster, um, I went and sat out in the Vic Roads, uh, you know, command station there, and they can switch the lights fairly quickly. Um, so if they see things happening, they can adjust them. So the system is actually quite smart. It's not smart in that it, it's self-sensing. Uh, it still has to be controlled remotely. But... Um, at the moment, there are certain things that they, you know, require, like, uh, you know, certain lead times and things like that. But one of the smart systems would be to possibly turn off the traffic lights. Now, and the Dutch have tried that. Um, and basically what they found is if, if we stop telling people how they should drive, at what speed they should drive, and whether it's safe to go through an intersection, and you, you know, revert back to when we were pre-traffic lights, in fact, the system starts to work quite efficiently. And in many cases, and they haven't done it in big cities, but they've done it in some smaller uh, cities, they're finding traffic moves more uh, safely, people travel at reasonable speeds, they engage the brain because there's nothing telling them you know, what speed to travel at. And the, the smart system, and this is a bit of a bugbear of mine, we talk about smart cities. 
Um, what is, I think we should talk about cities that are smart. And that's, that's a slightly different concept. That's understanding as a city how you can be smarter in the way you use things, rather than a reliance too much on just technology. Okay, Carlo. Maybe I'll say a couple of things just because um, no, you, you, you're asking about, um, about the, the traffic light. And I think what, what uh, Rob said is, um, is very important. It's been, you know, uh, we, there's been a lot of experiments. Today, technology can help us to also try other things, other solutions. And I think what I see is our role as uh, architects, researchers, designers is to explore some of this and then make it public and, you know, start a conversation about this. So I want to share with you some work we've been doing over the past two or three years um, on uh, traffic lights. And what you see here is a traditional traffic light. And traffic lights arrived on our roads when actually cars arrived on our roads. But if you've got intelligent, you know, self-driving cars, and every car knows where all the others are, well, <coughs> you can do like a digital version of what Rob was talking about, which is you don't need to stop anymore. You can keep on going, just avoiding collisions. A little bit like this. Don't try it yet. <laughs> I showed this movie in Naples, and they told me, so what is new here? Um, I, I'm Italian, so I can make such politically incorrect jokes. But I got corroborating evidence from a former Italian minister who said that in Milan, traffic lights are instructions. In Rome, there are suggestions. In Naples, there are Christmas decorations. <laughs> now. Again, you know, it becomes an interesting design issue. And, and it, this is when we talk about, you know, the interesting thing about design, what we were saying before, I think this is a piece of design that we did uh, together with uh, mathematicians in our lab. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> so we looked at the intersection and said, you know, well, what happens when um, you want to think about slot-based manage, managing intersection with slots? And again, it's an interesting mathematical problem. You, know, you redesign it, and you try to find a way. And what you see here is a real intersection in Singapore. To the left and to the right, you got the same number of vehicles getting to the intersection. Um, but uh, to the left, the intersection is managed using the most sophisticated traffic light system in existence today, which is actually an Australian technology. And to the right is based on slots. Same number of cars. And look at the difference in, ter oh, in terms of uh, delay per car and cars waiting to the left uh, and uh, to the right. Uh, so again, and, and um, if you go on the website, you also see the same thing with pedestrians, with bikes, and so on. But again, you know, for us, it was an experiment of starting using design to speculate. There's this idea you might have uh, people in architecture might be familiar with uh, speculative design, using design to try, you know, to see how things could change. In this case, you know, how, for instance, we can manage intersections in a different way. And, uh, and again, you know, the intersection, as you say, is the bottleneck, because it's the place where two flows fight for the same real estate. So if we fix it, then automatically we fix many things at the level of the, the city. Anyway, just just one I thought I'd show it as a, as a, 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 a piece of research we are, we're working on at MIT, but again, to, to, to start a conversation about how we can manage flows in a city in a different way once everything is uh, intelligent and has real-time information. Excellent question. Um, we have time for one more? Yep, one more. So two hands. Let's uh, maybe we can hear both of them, and then we two give. Two hands. Yep. Yeah. Thank you for the talk. And my question is, um, what do you see in the future of um, how different system in the city would collaborate? Like, say, the transport, um, public transport system, and like big roads, like all these different um, yeah. disciplines or institutions that are controlling the whole urban traffic. How would you see the future of it? Like, how would they make it yeah. smart? Should we listen to the other question as well, and then we respond to, to both of them? 
So as far as I understood, we can like keep on living in the cities with the structures that I have today, but we just need to change the organization and people's habits, basically. So I was just wondering, like, how um, do you plan to change people's habits? Like, what kind of actions would you take? And is that something that architects and designers can do, or is that, like, an effort that we all have to do together? I was just wondering about, like, the practicalities of it. Um, I, I would hate you to go away this evening to think that we don't have to add infrastructure, because um, for the proposition I've given you, you would actually build new accommodation along the tram lines and things like that. So um, our challenge is that um, the amount of infrastructure we need in the next 30 years would be replicating all the infrastructure we already have and built in almost 200 years in that 30-year period, if we were going to build in the same way. So as a profession and as a series of professionals, we're going to be flat out you know, keeping up with what is needed over the next 30 or 40 years. In fact, uh, if you're in that profession, you must probably be in the best profession in the world at the moment because of that rapid escalation. So there is new stuff being built, but where it is located and, and the nature of how it's designed is the thing that really interests me. Um, for instance, I'll give you a very brief example. Um, there, there was a residential uh, um, accommodation uh, that we're working on at the moment with a developer. And they came in with a standard set of plans. And you could very easily with a pen just say, if you took out that wall and took out that wall, you've now got a really big living room rather than a pokey little one with a table stuck up against the wall. And all that requires is that your bed comes out at night. And your bed's only occupied when you, you know, you're sleeping anyway, not when you're having dinner with people. Um, hopefully. And so, you know, it, it, you can actually flex these units and get far greater efficiency out of them. And, and that's where the design challenge is. I mean, I, I find that so exciting. I mean, I saw a unit in Barcelona, walked into it, could see where everything was. It was all hidden, but couldn't find the bed. The bed was slid under the terrace. The terrace was raised slightly and the bed was underneath and he just pulled it out. You know, and it's such a simple solution. You think, okay, you know, are we really trying? Um, I'll try to combine both, uh, both answers. So, uh, on this, you know, I agree with Rob. You know, we will need to change infrastructure, but I think we can uh, gain a lot by using it better. And uh, some infrastructure might change, for instance, is certainly mobility infrastructure. I think we see a lot of micro-mobility on the road. You know, vehicles are much smaller. We'll see, you know, a lot of electric vehicles. You know, that will need to change as well. So, so uh, all of this, you know, will certainly change uh, uh, in the city. The question then is how can we, um, can we use it better? Uh, and uh, so I think it's a combination of digital and physical. The second part of your question, um, I understand, was about, you know, well, you know, that behavioral change, how can it happen? And I think there's two important things probably to, to mention. The first one is that data itself, that we're not collecting a lot in the city, is also what can help us better understand how we live, our impact on the environment, and then eventually change our behavior. So I think a society where more data, hopefully, will also be a society where we can have more feedback loops and we can decide to respond to that data. So for instance, when you, uh, you know, now if you want, you can get from Google all your movements and you look at that and you say, well, how much, uh, a lot of inefficiencies in the, in the way, for instance, you're using the city or you're, you're, you're buying things. And, uh, and, and then, you know, we, that data can hopefully help us to live in a better way. Now, that's probably not enough. I mean, that's one component, data per se, Again, you know, I think as architects, designers, we make data more accessible to people. That's the first way to change the city or human behavior. 
but that's probably not enough. And uh, the other component is that, <clears throat> think about cars. Now, cars, the thing is happening, but in the 20th century, people would buy a car not necessarily because uh, just wanted to move from A to B, but actually because they wanted to show off, they wanted to, to show status. And that's the idea that Thurston Veblen, a great sociologist over 100 years ago, uh, was describing with the term conspicuous consumption. So unless we change that as well, uh, things will not happen. So I think the first thing is if we know better the consequences of what we do through data, but at the same time, you know, if as humans we continue to want to consume things to show off something, to show off status, then you know, that might not happen. Now the good news, however, and it's probably a longer conversation, we cannot have it fully, is that I believe that technology today is changing our relationship with uh, possessing things, with owning things. Uh, I wrote an, an, an editorial in The Guardian with uh, Richard Sennett. Uh, Richard Sennett is a sociologist. We are teaching together at MIT uh, this term and, uh, and so on. And with him we wrote something, the title that The Guardian gave was, Will the Internet Kill Conspicuous Consumption? And uh, our point is that, um, you know, as humans, probably what Thurston Veblen wrote about, I think was there in the past, probably will be there in 1500, in, in a thousand years. It's about we want to show and project something about us, about what we believe, about our values, about where we are, about how we relate with society. But the good news, I believe, is that uh, the internet allows us to do it in a way that's without consuming atoms. And that's what's happening more and more. You know, the fact that people take pictures of food and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and stuff in restaurants is, is uh, you know, maybe you don't need to own a car anymore, a big car, a big flashy car. You can brag just as well, just by taking a picture of your Uber and you know, your Mobike, or you're trying the latest Lime, Lime scooter in. I mean, I, 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 I saw the, the first Lime scooter in Australia and everybody was taking picture and bragging about you know, trying that and installing the app. So it's the same mechanism, but the good news for the planet is that we might be able to go from consumption, which is about physical things, uh, and you know, having to change the washing machine every three years, which is nonsense, but just to have the latest washing machine or the latest car, into bragging about uh, experiences that might be better for the planet, we might need to consume less physical things. And uh, the first question we, we heard, uh, uh, it was also a very interesting question because it was about, <clears throat> you know, how do we combine all of this? And, you know, I think it's about mobility, there's many actors, many players, and, and, uh, and also there's many other challenges, I think challenges in cities. Barcelona was mentioned a few times. Mark just came back today from, from Barcelona. Barcelona was the first city uh, ever to actually combine the position of chief architect uh, with the position of CTO. And you know, the, the idea was that basically if you want to design a new mobility system, you need to understand uh, you know, the key principle of planning. You need to be a great planner, uh, but you also need to understand how technology might affect self-driving cars and, uh, and many other things. And so I think we need to break many silos in cities we might need to break also many silences between companies. So I don't know if you were hinting at that, but, but for instance, if you are in New York, if you want to get a, a car, today you, you, have, uh, an app, you can use Uber, or you can use Lyft, uh, or, or you can use Via, which is cheaper, or you can use uh, you know, others, uh, but there's no integrator. And I think what we'll see soon, and Amsterdam is leading the way in that, is to find a way, we, we, we started calling it the, the moving web. And the moving web means that you know, basically all the options are there, and then you can actually select, and you've got a, a real-time information about all the mobility options you have, and also about all the spare capacity. Because again, today's system is better than the 20th century system, but still quite inefficient. Because, you know, again, you might, uh, let me tell you another, another reason why it's quite inefficient, maybe we, we, we can close on this, is, uh, is for deliveries. Uh, for deliveries uh, today, you know, we're not going to buy at the shop anymore, but before we would go once every three days or a few days, 
but now we might have five deliveries every day of people delivering something to our home with different trucks. So again, we need to com combine it. And I think you know that's what you're saying is about integrating, integrating not only between different parts of an organization, different parts of the city, but finding the way the different players in mobility uh, work together. Okay, Rob, parting words of wisdom. Just 30 seconds, and I hate to end uh, which sounds uh, sort of negative, but behavior change happens with crisis. And I'm not wishing any crisis on us at all. But I, I gave the New Zealand example. The trouble is we don't actually realize we're sitting at a critical part in our existence. Because we talk about climate change having to be mitigated by 2030 or 2040 and Paris agreements, the, the political terms are four years. And what happens is they actually default to procrastination. They do not take the big choices that they've got to take because it's a short-term thing. If we actually brought the future forward, and God knows the future is coming forward so quickly, do you want to bring it on any faster? But if we actually said tomorrow, within the next five years, we have to solve these problems, I have every faith that we have the intellect, the data, and the wherewithal to solve them. We are procrastinating. We are waiting for someone else to move. When we were short of water at the start of this uh, um, century, we were asked to all go back to about 50 litres per person, and we did it. I lived when petrol rationing was introduced, and we were all given six coupons, four litres each. Within two weeks, we had all adapted. We picked up people, we shared cars, we did it. We need to, without having a crisis, bring on the thinking that a crisis would bring on and suddenly say, how would we do this? And then communicate it in some way that doesn't frighten people because it might be the flexi time that means you don't all have to get on the roads at 8 o'clock together um, would actually solve a huge congestion problem. Thank you. And, uh, maybe then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll play the... I'll play just because we cannot finish on a on a on a. I, I'll play I'll play the reckless American optimist. So I want to say there's however something very positive that for the first time in humanity's history, energy coming from the sun. You know the screw up we've been doing over the past uh, hundred years is because we've been using fossil fuels and then that has generated a lot of CO2 emissions and that is changing the atmosphere. And you know a lot of what we are fighting now comes from that. But for the first time in human history, and this has happened over the past two years. The cost of solar is now the most competitive in most countries, most competitive in anything else. In uh, Saudi Arabia, it has gone down to, according to the latest plan, there's a plan by Massa, the, the great investor, Massa Norris' son uh, from, from uh, SoftBank. Uh, he wants to invest 200 billion in the biggest solar plant. Uh, and the cost there per uh, megawatt hour produced should be around $15. Just to give you in perspective, a barrel of oil is equivalent to 1.6 megawatt hour. And so basically that means, you know, all the equivalent for oil would be something like $20. And that's today and still going down very fast. So I think we're also at a very, I mean, that's vital because you know, all the scrap comes from energy. But for the first time, we got energy, sustainable, renewable energy. That's the most uh, competitive energy source uh, on the planet. And so even if we have uh, politicians who might not grasp it, uh, like in the United States, who might, who might, who might uh, you know, just, you know, uh, promote coal, or so, I think in the end, we might be able to survive thanks uh, to that. And I want to say this just not to end on a on a on I'm a, on an optimist a as well. I think we will as well, but let's just do it quickly. Okay, but uh, all, uh, all, to all together. <laughs> thanks. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you get away with that because one of you're one of the top 50 people in the world we're supposed to listen to.
about what you're supposed to listen to in, in, in 2009 or whatever you oh, say. So no, 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 now you can. Oh, you we can, can stop listening. Okay. Would everybody please thank these two great gentlemen for a, a wonderful conversation. And I would just like to present you with um, our very famous Swinburne memo bottles designed wow. by one of our design students. They're, they're really good for travelling. They fit really nicely into the aeroplane pocket in front. And really good for plane trees that make your throat tickle. <laughs> if anyone's having a tickly throat, apparently it's those trees. So I think we should end this and thank you very much all for coming tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much for coming tonight. Um, we need to run across the park now before it starts really raining. So we're going to get away without getting wet, which is great. And uh, do check the M Pavilion site for other great events that are coming up. And um, look at the MIT Sensible Cities website because it's really, really cool. Thank you. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, find our podcast at mpavilion.org forward slash about.